Hello, this is Matt Marone, the worship pastor here at Glenown Bible Church. You're listening to the Next Level Podcast. Today, we're going to answer listener questions from Sunday, September 17, 2023. Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the co-founder and executive director of Naomi's House. Hi, I'm John Vanderbilt, the executive pastor here at Glenown Bible Church. And I'm Kelly Brady, senior pastor at Glenown. <laughs> Nice pause. Oh, oh, I was impressed. And I'm Kelly Brady, Senior Pastor at Glowing Bible Church. Thanks so much for tuning in today to the next level. Simone, if you're the co-founder, who's co with you? Her name's uh, Mary Lohman. Right. Yeah. Silent partner. I just haven't met her. No, or? she's just retired. There's so many times where I want to say, I'm John Vanderbilt, the other founder of, of Naomi's House. Because <laughs> you say co-founder, it seems like there's another person right, right. that's going to oh, announce next. themselves. I mean, it's just honoring to her. We nah, did it together. Just go founder. Just go. Just Just founder. say founder? That feels disingenuous. <laughs> it was very much a partnership at the beginning and then once, it, once we opened. You're good. I'm just teasing. Always tell the truth, Simone. You, hey, it's good Kelly. to be back on the uh, podcast. The old gang's back together again. Good to see you. Yeah, I try to so I try to break in and be a part of this thing, but you guys yeah. keep kicking me out. How's so. your life these days, John? <laughs> it's great. Liar. Do, do you feel like you are bored? Or do you have plenty to do? <laughs> what what, next, what shows have you been watching Why don't you lately, tell John? <laughs> What was the last time you watched television? A lot of relaxing. Tell us what you're doing with your life, so we all feel really bad about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Just doing the Lord's work. Mm. Some seasons are busier than others. Some seasons are harder than others. We're in a busy, hard season. It's all good. Lots going on. Lots to celebrate. So Lots of opportunity don't to miss, contribute. Don't miss the rewards in the midst of the, the trials, right? Or not trials. I'm not like under trial. It's just, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> a lot yeah. of nights, a lot of nights doing programming. For the listeners, John is overseeing our senior high ministry, if you're unaware of that. And Sunday night, 154 students. high school students present. Yep. 100 and 146, I think, at kickoff, or close to 150 at kickoff. And then more students the next, the next Sunday. Was that number That's two? Great. Yeah, number yeah, two. That was number two. So great. usually we see a dip, but we actually saw more, more students, which, man, it is, I will tell you this, as much... Uh, work as it is, and like just details, logistics, making sure everything's going and caring for leaders and helping parents and all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, being kind of that point or behind the the actual people day in, day out, you know, running everything. It is uh, awesome to be a part of. I mean, it is so rewarding. Like I drove home at like 10 o'clock on Sunday night and was just like so excited and jazzed because... We do like a debrief with the leaders afterwards and the questions that kids are wrestling with and how our leaders are speaking truth into some of those um, questions. Like the topic was grace and a kid asked, you know, I don't really think I understand what that word means. Mm. As a sophomore boy to these two, you know, college leaders and they, and they were talking just like how awesome it was to talk about grace, what grace really looked like and then how God's grace had penetrated their hearts and their lives and like um, just lots of cool stuff going on. Worship. Our high school students know how to worship. I mean, it's unbelievable. The passion, the hands raised in the room, arms around each other, singing together. Like 
it is, it's really, really cool, really, really powerful. And it's student led. Mm-hmm. Our students are leading students. Um, and I could go on and on, but in yeah. the midst of all the busy and the, the work and all that's going on and the logistics, there's some cool, cool re- rewards. Some significant fruit. Yeah. yeah. And nice. the season that you're spinning right now in it will help you lead oh. the future director that much more. 100%. You know exactly what they're. Agreed. You know, like. Yep. Agreed. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy um, trying to be in different parts of the band throughout the year. Sometimes I'll hop on the drums if yeah. I get a chance. Yeah. And it's funny, just the little things that you notice, like you, I get back there and like, this chair's horrible. This chair's broken. No one said anything. Why is, oh my gosh, no wonder it takes the drummer so long to start the song. Like, you, yeah. you know, this this is way over here and this thing over here is, uh, and it just, yeah. I would have never known that because a lot of times people yeah. don't speak up because they don't want to cause a yeah. thing. Well, and then, But it, when you sit in their seat, when you stand in their place for a minute, you get yep. their perspective, and it helps you lead better. It sure. was it was funny on Sunday. I we wanted to play music in the in the worship center and use and have a microphone so we can. I mean, there's 150 plus leaders. There's nearly 200 people with volunteers and leaders and everybody, and we got to f- pray, feed them, move them into the gym for games. So we want microphone and all this kind of stuff. And some of the leaders are they're running around trying to find these speakers and do all this kind of stuff. I'm like, guys, we have a sound system. <laughs> in the welcome center and here's the mic literally takes 10 seconds to turn it all on and use it and they're like we have a sound system in the welcome yeah. center i'm like yeah it's a great one too you know yeah so it was you I mean just stuff like that like yeah. being involved they just didn't they didn't know yeah. you know what it was and so it's cool to be a part we of asked it. john to lead senior high ministries because three percent of the ministry is <laughs> are his children <laughs> yeah this sunday night somebody yeah. leaned over to me and goes only Carrie's not here. <laughs> <laughs> and she's loving that. Yeah, she's fine with that. She's fine with that. But good. Let's well, answer questions. Yeah. Now let's get into it. Kelly, you were at Poplar. Yep. John, you were here at GBC. I think we have questions for both of y'all. So here we go. Um, first up, I completely agree that as believers, our home is in heaven, and it is not this world. But what is heaven like? What can we expect? What can we expect? What will we be experiencing? John, I think this is from yours. I don't remember touching on this, but... Yeah, I used the um, example of the author of Hebrews is writing so that his um, congregation makes it home. Ah, like, that's right. And our home is not here on earth. Don't go, don't go back. Don't get too comfortable. So I really appreciated that intro. I thought that set it up well. It's the important. sorry, the sorry board game. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I heaven is. An, I'll be honest with you. If I can be vulnerable, I do not think about heaven very often, and I probably should think about it more. I don't know if it's age stage of life. I do think that you know younger people probably tend to not think about it. It's interesting. I I think you're. My mom has been staying with us and um, she's 85 and um, just to watch her age and it's, it's all, it's a head for all of us, right? Lord willing, we'll all get to live a long and productive life. Um, but it is more uh, something that moves to the front burner as you watch your parents age and Sherry was up in Wisconsin this weekend caring for her mom and uh, um, step stepdad and they had had some surgery and um, just trying to 
navigate all that when they're older. And so I do think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on. The the evangelistic call, you know, to make it to heaven when you die has never been that compelling to me. And it hasn't been something that I have used a lot when I share my faith with others. I, yeah. I usually talk about it, you know, more about the joy and mm-hmm. the mission and the contribution we get to make because of what Christ has done for us and the the earthly, which is the earthly experience that we get to have uh, as well, mm-hmm. uh, along with yep. the beauty of being in, in heaven for eternal life. We can't forget that. We can't not talk about that. But it was not a primary driver for me as a young person. It, it isn't a primary driver for me today. Like I don't make decisions thinking, boy, I'm that'll get me to heaven or heaven, you know, there's certainly are moments where I'm like, can I go to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, again, I think you're onto something, um, persecution, trials, hardship that aren't quickly remedied will turn us towards the, the place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sufferings. And heaven's often described as that place of no more, mm-hmm. you know, no more persecution, hardship, trials. So, it's a good reminder for me to not get comfortable here, though. Mm-hmm. To not, uh, you know, to to take risks for the kingdom, to give more away than I probably should be giving, and to, you know, go deeper in relationships because it's temporary. It, it matters, but it's not our home. Well, it, it's also you know the suburban life is really a place that we're we're creating convenience and we're creating comfort, and there's no sin in that necessarily, but. If our life um, gets too comfortable, then we miss out or we're not identifying. I think of Matthew chapter 25, um, just the, the call to identify those with, with those who are sick, suffering, in jail, those that are experiencing hardships. And I, I do think it's a, the lowly, the marginalized. That's an important call. And it helps suburbanites mm-hmm. um, f- remember who Christ is, all that he's done, his mission. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking about when you were talking about getting to the end, like the end of the game. Um, I don't necessarily think of heaven so much as like a location that like we're trying to get to this, you know, this, I don't know, place mm-hmm. necessarily as much as the um, the idea of having fullness and completeness with Jesus without the wrestle of sin anymore. And it's like a, we're getting there, we're working our way toward that. But it's, if you can think of a moment in your life, hopefully recently where you've just been like kind of engulfed by the Holy spirit, like Mm -hmm. you've just had an intimate time in the word or prayer or an experience that you just recognize this is what it feels like to be in the presence of the Lord. And those are fleeting. That doesn't happen as much as my heart wishes that they did. Um, because of our lives, uh, how busy they are, how, you know, we're, we're living on the fast track. We've got lots of kids and lots of, um, responsibilities and those types of things that can be so distracting from being in the stillness and the presence of the Lord. And I, when I think about heaven, I think about that is, that is eternal. It is yeah. eternal peace and it's eternal worship. And it's, it's, there's no more distractions. And even if the distractions that we have in our lives are good and fruitful and they are furthering the kingdom, um, 
there just seems to be a longing that I think God has placed in us mm-hmm. that is fully desiring him forever and not growing tired of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's kind of how I would describe when I think of heaven and, and asking the Lord to shift my perspective today. Mm-hmm. That's what I long for. That's good. Yeah. Kelly, can you talk a little bit about um, just you know trying to answer some of the yeah, questions? Yeah, just what definitionally. We'll be experiencing? Well, um, you talk about the new heavens and the new earth the physical reality of what yeah. heaven will ultimately be when God transforms the it, earth. Yeah, the book of Revelation gives us what I think are artistic descriptions, poetic descriptions, that require imagination. I don't actually think there'll be streets of gold, but it that paints a picture of the brilliance, the beauty, um, of heaven, so we can say from the Book of Revelation, from other passages in Scripture, it's a it's the place. And Simone brought this up. It's a place where we are in God's presence, where the barrier of sin and and the realities of sin are removed, and we are brought into His presence. Uh, Hebrews chapter ten talks about the blood of Christ bringing us into His presence. Uh, it's the place of God's perfect reign and rule. He's He ha- is exercising His will. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So heaven's this place of God's perfect reign and rule. It is a physical place. We've talked about it's without suffering, it's without pain, it's without loss, it's without tears. It's a place of contentment, happiness. It's a place where we act and interact with others. We'll know and be known. Uh, It's a place where we'll bear responsibility, we'll exercise authority, um, which, you know, is great. You know, if you grew up watching 1970s cartoons, heaven was depicted as a place of eternal boredom in my, you know, it was a place where you float around on clouds and played harps with little wings. So if you got your theology of heaven from Looney Tunes, then it's, it's, that's not helpful, right? It's, it's a place of ultimate responsibility where we're contributing, where our being is in its fullest, my gifts, my calling, my talents are being fully engaged. And so based on what we know, I encourage people to use their imaginations. And I recommend a book titled The Great Divorce. And a better title, that's kind of a British title. Another title could be The Great Divide or The Great Difference. It's the difference between hell and heaven. And he's using his imagination to describe it. It's a short little book and it's it's a fiction, right, about a uh, a tour. Uh, they get on, it's a tour of the um, citizens of hell want to take a tour of heaven and they get on a bus and they go on this tour. So I won't ruin it for you, but it's Lewis really uses his imagination to describe both hell and heaven. Yeah. That book, more than any of his other books that I've read, and I haven't read all of them, but more than any other, that gave me an inside look into how his mind works yeah. and how, how the depths of his imagination. Mm-hmm. And that, that really reading gifted. that book made me go, oh, wow, he is thinking <laughs> way further yeah. than I'm thinking about stuff like this creatively, imaginatively. Like, Great just, divorce and um, screw tape letters yeah. are very kind of yeah. similar in that that theme of... How he pictures, yeah, shows supernatural evil, realities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. What does it mean to hear God's voice? How can we have the confidence that it, it is God's voice and not our own? What do we do when we believe we are following God's voice, but other believers don't see it the same way? Was this from yours, or is this just an add-on? 
I think this, this is not from mine. I don't think I talked about hearing. I God's think the voice. question asker uh, asked the first question and then sent in a follow up. So I think this is kind of just a. Oh, and I was wondering this too. So um, I don't think this, in other words, is a direct takeaway from the sermon. But I would just say, hey, here's the good news about hearing God's voice: He speaks. He can get our attention. Uh, we may be hard of hearing, which isn't where we want to stay. But the good news: God, God can break through. He spoke to Abraham and Jacob and Moses directly. He spoke to Ananias, Peter, Paul through visions. God can get our... Uh, Job talks about dreams in Job chapter 33, giving God gives us dreams that provide correction and or guidance. So he speaks and we can hear his voice, which is great. Hearing God's voice comes... I would say with practice, it takes time. I also think it, it takes the help of others. You may remember the priest Eli helped Samuel learn um, that it was God trying to speak to him. And so Eli coached Samuel on here's how you respond when you hear, when you hear God speaking. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 3, if you want to go read it. Uh, but ultimately for us, hearing God's voice means listening to the scripture. So Second Peter uh, the apostle says, Scripture is from God. The Holy Spirit has moved uh, those, the prophets along and spoken to the prophets for our benefit. So it's Second Peter chapter 1. So we can receive the Scripture knowing these are God's spoken word. And, and we, we want God, we want to hear his voice. We need to saturate our mind with the words he's already said. So he may speak very personal words to Matt and Simone and John and I uh, about our lives, our kids, our families, our direction, very personal words. But he has spoken to all people already through many words that are found in scripture. So if we want to if we want to hear the personal words about hey Kelly you need to work on this area of your life, you know, God's speaking to me, you need to address this issue, whatever that might be, or you need you need to step out here or there, right? Very personal words. If I'm going to hear the very personal words, then it only stands to reason that I'll recognize them and respond to them as in as much as I know the very the words he's spoken to all people through his scripture. Does that make sense? Uh, hearing God's voice is a function of the Holy Spirit. We know in First John that it's the Spirit that teaches us uh, all that we need to know. So it's the Spirit who's actually doing the speaking. And hearing God's voice leads us to follow Jesus. It always has the impact. Um, Jesus said of himself, I'm the good shepherd. He compared those who follow him to sheep. And so anytime, whether it's a very personal word to me or a more congregational word to the people of Glow and Bible Church, it's always going to have the effect, the outcome will be uh, greater, and glory, greater glory and honor for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it'll always lead us to emulate the character, conduct, and concerns of Christ. As for what to do when people disagree, hmm. um, there we're in a, a little more difficult, nuanced discussion. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially on things that are really points of passion for, I think, of theological issues or... Lifestyle. Family, yeah, family issues, things like that, that can be political things. Um, I think the takeaway is obviously, you know, basing the discussions in God's word 
not just on our, you know, God doesn't speak contrary to what his word says, right? So Correct. basing things on his word, um, being in prayer together, if you have conflict with someone, but then ultimately thinking the best of, of each other. So we can disagree, we can adamantly disagree, um, and I'm not talking necessarily about s- deep sin issues or things like that where fellowship needs to be broken or discipline is involved or those sorts of things, but just in your, you know, kind of the day-to-day rub on some bigger issues or things like that, but being civil in our discourse with one another. Yeah, patient with each other. Yeah, grace, patience, gentleness, tenderness, um, obviously grasping and holding on to truth, but then how we display that, how we share that, how we live that. You see so much just bitterness and anger and fighting and harsh words mm-hmm. we're um simone and i are reading a book for our, our class uh, we're in a, a doctor of ministry program we're reading a book for our class called the four views on hermeneutical interpretation i can't even say the title <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so far hands down been my favorite mm-hmm. book in the in the course and it's not it's scholarly whatever um but basically four major scholars are talking about the lens in which they read scripture and then apply it to everyday life. Mm-hmm. It's actually ruined my ability to listen to a message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't study hermeneutics and exegesis if you want if you want to just sit and listen and have God's word <laughs> watch over you. The so the book, sorry, this is just it's just a story to kind of engage you a little bit, but so each of these four major theologians, I mean, major, Walt Kaiser, Kevin Van Hooser, major, major folks, um, right, they're the lens at which they work to interpret scripture and apply it to their lives and how they go through that. And they're they're different. And then in between the, the times where they describe their view each of the other authors writes a critique of the other person's view. So Matt would offer his view here. I look at, you know, I use a whatever, redemptive hermeneutic. And Simone uses, you know, a different hermeneutic, historical perspective or something. And then Simone would write about why Matt's isn't a good view. And Matt would write why Simone's is not a good view. After, you know, so the in-between these views... It's so fascinating mm-hmm. because they adamantly disagree. This is their job, their profession, their whole lives dedicated to that view. Right. And the way that they interact with each other is beautiful. They say really direct, hard things. Yeah. Your view is completely and totally inadequate, and I would never use it to under, under <laughs> but he's a beautiful man who loves his children and his family, and I'm so glad he's leading in this in this movement. And you know, man, he has a beautiful description of the da 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 this part even though he's absolutely ridiculous in this part. Yeah. But the way that they ca- they carry on a conversation, um, a way that they carry on a conversation, and granted, it's writing. They're not in the same room. It's just so refreshing to me to hear and read people who are disagree but yet honor each other. Are you, are you saying that you like the model of how it looks to have a healthy conversation where there's disagreement, but you can still be affirming on some level. That's a hundred percent what I'm saying is that I feel like there's a lot of books and conversations and videos and things that we see where that 
level of respect for each other and discourse over a major theological issues is just not present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just blow the other side out of the water, say that they're ridiculous, their whole life doesn't matter, they make it personal on their attack, mm-hmm. and so... Now, you may be listening to all of this, and you may be thinking, then what hope is there? <laughs> like, right. I'm, not, I'm never going to go as deep into theology and understanding God's Word as these four people are, and they totally disagree. So what's the point? You may be thinking that. I want to bring this up. I haven't read the book, but God can use and probably, and will, and probably does use all four different views, even though when those four views collide with each other Mm -hmm. in a textbook, they argue and they call each other, you know, erroneous or whatever they do. But God can use all four to uh, filter down into the church through pastors who are using these different lenses and exegeting mm-hmm. God's Word and applying it to each church, and God can and will and does use all four of those, yes. and probably more. Yes, where the, com- <laughs> where the commonality is, and they, you know, right out front is, we all agree this is God's Word. Mm-hmm. It's holy and it's inspired to, to original authors who, who wrote it. And yeah. th- and then it's it's uh, they use the phrase how do you go beyond beyond scripture so beyond meaning we all agree with this how do we apply it to our lives so there totally. is a foundational truth that they're an objective truth that they all are agreeing on yep. but how that plays out in their context in their specific churches in the areas of you know the country that they live where they've come from are different yeah which you're right Matt they, yeah. there's truth. There's a central truth, but then how it plays out, right, um, right, and how it benefits the church and the kingdom is. So can we can we talk practically real quick? Like Simone, when you hear, when you feel like you're hearing from God, mm-hmm. can you talk to us about just how do you, how, what are what are the beginning steps that you take in determining? Right, sometimes we can determine in the moment. Sometimes it might take weeks or months. Uh, it just kind of depends on what the situation is. But what are those maybe those first few steps that you start to take? when you're determining, okay, is this from God or is this from me? Hmm. Now, that's a great question. I mean, I would, I think I would always measure it against scripture, right? So is this pointing to God's glory or is this something else? And, um, I probably would, would start there. And, um, I like the, I'm, I'm a, a relational person who processes out loud. So, the idea of processing, I'm hearing from God and I want to share this with somebody is resonates with me. And I, and so sort of answering your question, but also going back to the, what do we do when someone doesn't believe the same way as you? And I think it's important that if you're going to be communicating, first of all, if you're communicating to someone, I'm hearing from the Lord, that's a very vulnerable step to take with anybody. So choosing the right person to say that to, I think is really key. Um, and I don't mean only share it with people who are going to have the same view as you or um, not give you any pushback because there's lots of value in having conversation with people who might see it differently. Um, but there is a level of trust. And I think John's point of this book is that these are four different authors and scholars or um, clearly they're friends. You can get that from the reading. And I think that something to take from that example is that having transparent and vulnerable discussions about something so personal as I'm like to get, make it practical. If you're, I can't think of an example, but like, let's say you're trying to decide where to send your kid to high school. Like that feels like a common conversation that we have in our circles and you're praying about it and you want to hear from the Lord about it and you do, but then you bring it to your group of friends or someone you trust and you have this conversation. And let's say they 
have a totally different philosophy on school than you do. Um, you can have a very productive conversation and they can still speak into whether or not they agree or disagree with your decision possibly. Um, but it's with a person you trust. It's with a person that you, you recognize isn't out to, they're not in competition with mm-hmm. you or they're not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. They genuinely want the best for you just like you want that for them. And so those, I think it's in those contexts that you have these conversations that you share these kind of intimate and vulnerable moments with the Lord where I heard from him. And honestly, if it's not, if it's not contradicting scripture, I don't know that you can argue with that, honestly, mm-hmm. with someone who might have a different, because God's plans could be different for you than they are for me. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What house to buy, who to marry, although oh, that's a big one. broadly, you know, we shouldn't be unequally yoked, we're told in scripture, but um, assuming someone's equally yoked, picking. Some, sometimes it's very in the moment. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're talking with somebody, it's getting really heavy and you're going, I'm beyond, I'm out over my skis here. Yeah. God, will you... Please speak into this. This isn't going well. I, um, you know, and I think in those moments, I could probably liken that to many moments that I have on the uh, on the platform when we're, I'm singing, playing, and I feel like I'm hearing something, and I'm having a conversation with God as that's going on. And w- the first place I go to usually is, okay, is that God? Will you tell me? Is this from you or is this from me? Mm-hmm. And I'll start to kind of <laughs> try to nuance that a little bit. And when I land it, it, almost every time it feels like it goes this way. When I when I land it, now I'm pretty sure that was from me. If it was, it's done. Yeah. It's gone. I move on. We're on to the next thing. Yeah. But if I land there, and maybe it is from God, it just doesn't go away. Right. It keeps it, coming back around. It, and, co- yeah, it just right. won't stop. Right. And I might even double down and be like, no, nope, no, nope, I know that's from me. I can follow the train of thought of how I got here. It was kind of roundabout. Nope. And it just doesn't go away. That's one of, for me, that's usually a signal that, Okay, this might be from God. I should also add, it's a important element of pastoral ministry, and I think of parenting, and what would the gerund be? Spousing, <laughs> being married, to remember, I am not the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, Scripture is really clear that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness, and so. I try to share my perspective and opinion, proclaim the gospel, and then wait and watch. If someone's in error, and sometimes, well, many times, I'm in error, the Holy Spirit is promised, given for the purpose of course correction. Uh, Tim Keller, um, he recently passed away, a beloved apologist and pastor, said that the beautiful thing about the Christian community is it has an internal referent that course corrects. Mm -hmm. We can't claim that church history is flawless. There's really ugly things in the history of the church. At the same time, you can see in Christianity marked course correction where the spirit has moved and, and rebuked and encouraged and strengthened the church and brought us out of sin. And he does that at an individual level and a congregational level and a global level. So I'm thankful is my point for the Holy Spirit. We don't have to, I don't have to feel the responsibility to convince or convict anybody, 
my responsibility is simply to communicate the good news and, and what I've been convicted on, mm-hmm. what I believe. Um, and do it in a posture that's yeah. loving, mm-hmm. caring, kind. Like It takes a lot of burden it, off me to know I don't have to be the Holy Spirit. I don't actually have to convince or convict somebody. Because mm-hmm. in the pulpit, the minute you feel, or as a parent, that shifts. If you, It shifts to control mm-hmm. and manipulation. If I think I have to convict a congregation to respond in a particular way or convict my children, mm-hmm. it gets ugly quick. Mm-hmm. And the tricky thing about parenting with that mindset is that nobody tells you when it shifts. Agree. <laughs> like, Agree. All of a sudden, I have this conversation with my 16-year-old all the time, comparing her to my six-year-old. I'm like, you were six yesterday. Do you see what it takes to parent her compared to what it's like to parent you? It's so different. Nope. <laughs> I always tell my kids, yeah. you're getting all this parenting wisdom for free, guys. Just, keep, you just take it all in. As I'm, <laughs> It's just so true. I love that. It's such a good reminder. It should be freeing to parents who really struggle with desperately wanting to impart your wisdom to your children and recognizing there comes a point where you are no longer telling them you're Mm -hmm. just coaching them. And that's just a, so hard. I remember a moment why it came home and we were talking about a theological issue. Um, I'm pretty sure it was create. He was asking about creation or something like that. And he goes, well, what do we believe? I was like, well, we. <laughs> I like that question. You just didn't tell him what we believe. And I said, well, you know, well, I don't know. What do you. How old was he? What do you believe? He yeah. was 15. And I, I said, I can tell you why I hold my position, but Carrie and I actually have some nuance on our position that we're not exactly 100% yep. the same on it. Right. And, um, and so I constantly try to convince her. <laughs> and and so we kind of, you know, what, what did you, how did I come to that? And what did I learn as a kid? And how did it shape and change? And what do I believe? What are the values in these, you know? And if I just tell him as a 15-year-old, it's always what serve to, him well. Boy, yeah. For sure. He's got to own. It's like when a kid comes to you and says, dad, are we rich? And you say, well, I'm rich. You don't have any money. <laughs> and it's old the same. School. It's That's like, old school. careful, careful that, because God doesn't have grandbabies. He's only got children, right? And so that it needs true. to become personal to them and they need to own it. And it's not the same for every single one of my, my kids. I know why it's depth of feeling, knowledge. I know the experiences that we've had, the conversations have led up to that moment. I'm in his life. I know. One of my other kids might say, well, what do we believe? And I know that they aren't quite there yet, you know, ready yet, old enough. They're still, they still need a little bit more of the, here's the, Mm -hmm. a a good answer. Mm -hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with passing down the tradition. A hundred percent. They're right. supposed to yeah. train them up. Yeah, yeah. for right. sure. A hundred percent. You're just saying use discernment in who they are, their maturity, right. their yeah. own faith journey to kind of discern, which is what I'm saying is so hard. <laughs> it like, is. Because they're all so they different. They paint by numbers and, and the, you give them they, a canvas. Okay. So when they do that and they walk into a college dorm room yeah. and somebody <laughs> says, yeah. that's a bunch of BS mm-hmm. right. and they have their leg to stand on is, well, that's what my dad told me. Mm-hmm. Yep. That ain't gonna hold water. <laughs> we all know that. Mama said. Yeah. Mama said. 
Well, it's interesting. We'll do some work in the prodigal son um, in the new year in January, February. It's a great um, reminder that children are different. What the younger boy needed, the older boy didn't need. And what the older boy needed, the younger boy mm-hmm. didn't need. And it, that is the, that's the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Oh, What's terrible. fun when you have when you have fiery questions and they actually come to a different place than you mm-hmm. on something. Mm-hmm. Those are fun. <laughs> you cut their allowance, right? Ground them. <laughs> Rewrite my will. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go to the next one. Next one says, "Hello, great sermon today." This is for John. Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> Just curious what fixing our eyes on Jesus looks like practically and day to day. Thanks. Love the podcast. That was for you. I would just say the bottom part, the love the podcast. Yeah, that thank you. Fix your eyes on Jesus for me. It means reading, meditating, memorizing scripture so that our our minds are renewed. Paul writes in Romans twelve, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's will his good, pleasing, and perfect will, to know the will of God, his purposes for me. I need to have my mind transformed. I need to see the world as he sees it, increasingly see it as he sees it. To do that, I've got to get his word into my head and into my heart. And so that's how I fix my eyes primarily. Not solely, but primarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, A good walk in the woods can also fix my eyes on Jesus. I think of um, in Hebrews... This, this person said, fix your eyes, but that wasn't in the text this week. It was fix your thoughts. thoughts. And uh, he, the Hebrews has fix your eyes, fix your mind, fix your thoughts, fix your heart. Hmm. Uh, there's a couple. Or, I might even be missing a few. But um, it's the idea of fixing your, your whole life. And I think it's actually strategic, that the usage of them. I think there's eyes... Is, is one thing. I think heart is one thing. I think thoughts is one thing. As much as we are a unified being, <laughs> we, you know, and we are spiritual beings and those sorts of things. But when I think of fix my eyes, it's like, what am I, what am I trusting in? What am I, what am I actually looking to, you know? Um, I think of, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lead not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. I think of that, like, what am I, trusting? What am I fixing? What am I acknowledging as I look out ahead of me? Um, my thoughts in the text this morning, I think of, and I used it on Sunday, man, our thoughts can be consumed with so many different things. I mean, walking into the, onto the platform to, to preach, my mind was thinking about three different things that were going on that morning that are going to need my attention there's just so many things that we can we can focus our thoughts on and get consumed in our thoughts. And it's like, but if we fix our thoughts on Jesus, not that we don't think about those other things, but what's the primary thing? What's driving all other thoughts? What's the thing we long to get back to when we have to think on other things? Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking about something along those lines the other day, like just one of the traps of ministry. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Uh, is spending time studying God as opposed to spending time with God. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, if you're in ministry and you, you know, you're allowed to have time where you're, where you're studying the word, you're studying God, sometimes it can shift into more of the academic and more of the, 
more of that space, which there's value in that, but if you do it to the neglect of spending time with God, mm-hmm. um, that for me, that's where the, the line is, crosses for me, where fix your, your, your eyes, your heart, your, all, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. I'm really curious what this word fix translates to. Yeah, the Greek word, yeah. I, I look, I chose not to go into it. I did do some work on it a little bit. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but I think it's connected, if I remember rightly, to the idea, the holding, mm-hmm. the holding fast, the mm-hmm. fixing, the um, that that mind mm-hmm. mindset is um, let that be the, what is consuming. Mm-hmm. An obvious example I have in my family right now is my 11-year-old Asher is playing fantasy football and very consumed with it. Oh, knows. yeah. I, we watched, was it last night, Monday? We watched Monday Night Football last night and the amount of information he knew of these players, their stats, their previous teams, their the expectations, their value on fantasy. I mean, I was blown away. Isn't it amazing? I mean, partly impressed, to be honest. And the other part was like, I am steering this child wrong. Like he is obsessed. He's he's not fixing his eyes on Jesus. He's fixing his eyes on the NFL. If we could just you know, turn this yeah. into the Bible and look at all he could know about the Bible. <laughs> there was a part of me that wanted to. Yes. No, but uh, what a good example of someone. He's just he's been. Um, he loves it. It's entertaining to him. It's you know it's fine. It's not. I'm not worried about him. But I'm just saying, gosh, if we could have that same passion and desire for for God and and for fixing our eyes on Jesus and knowing everything about Him and putting us in a, p- a position and a posture to hear from Him and help that like get be in a place to discern decision making and loving others and all the things that look our lives would look like if our eyes mm-hmm. were truly fixed on Jesus, that everything we would say and do would be yeah. similar to Asher's knowledge of the NFL stats. <laughs> I think too, there's a, I think some of this is corrective from the the preacher in he Like, I think there's a tendency for that church to think about and fix themselves on some specific other things that he addresses with um, Moses, angels, apostles, high priest, I think there's an intentionality about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the original audience is, wants to fix their mind, thoughts, hearts on the things that they used to right. be forced to or forced to choose to or whatever, right? So now he's saying, this is a corrective. We're not fixing on those things. Mm-hmm. We are fixing on Jesus and Jesus alone. Mm-hmm. He is greater. He is higher. He is better. He, all those um, you know, descriptors for for Christ. Yeah. So there's a lot of comparison to your point of Moses and angels, like you just said. So you can see that, yeah, that's a great point. John, your the repetition of fix, the charge to fix, fix your thoughts, fix your eyes, reminded me of the Shema, which mm. is the the declaration. So the book of Hebrews written to the Hebrew community, the Israelites that are following Christ as the Messiah. Well, the Shema is interesting. It's the it's this this uh, cornerstone declaration in Deuteronomy 6, you'll, when I read it here, everybody will recognize it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, right? Jesus quoted that later. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your kids. Talk about them when you sit down. Uh, 
sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So you get the notion that the Hebrew community w- would have understood what it was what it meant to fix their eyes on something here. It's the commands of God given through Moses, the law. And I, I do think, I wonder if there's a corrective to a certain extent, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Mm-hmm. Fix your eyes on Christ. Uh, so talk about Christ to your children. Uh, talk about him when you sit at home, talk about him when you walk along the road, when you lie down, talk about Jesus, tie Christ as a symbol on your hands, bind him as a for- on your forehead, you know, just kind of building out the new Testament Shema as it were. Katanoeo to fix. Ah, yes. That's what it means. Katanoeo. Is that the one that means to bind, construct? Give careful consideration, be concerned about, understand, completely notice. It's a knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a knowledge issue. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Matt. That's that's Logos. Fantastic program. Um, All right, let's go to the next one. In Hebrews 3, verses 7, 12, and 15, the word today is capitalized. Why is that? I've never been able to find the answer. John, do you remember what you said on this? I liked what you said better than what I what I said. All I right. just said every day. It means constant. That's what the as long as today is called today. Yeah. Because every day is called today. Yep. I, said, I don't know why it's capitalized necessarily. The only thing I can think of is in verse three and verse fifteen. I think it starts a sentence. <laughs> But I could be wrong. I don't. Just good old gram- yeah, grammatical. Yeah, g- good old grammar. But I don't know that for sure. I I'll be honest. I did not uh, do the work on this question. Um, looks like you did some work on it. But I just believe that it's capitalized because it's today. Today is today. We should do it constantly. We should do it in every day that ends with Y. <laughs> nice. What a parent. What a dad quote. Yeah. In Hebrews three verse seven, it's just simply beginning a sentence. Yeah. Like. Right, yeah. some gra- grammar there. Yeah. I do know that it comes up in four again, and it is capitalized, giving so, you rest for today or something to that effect. So, so Hebrews chapter three, the author quotes significant portions of Psalm ninety-five, and so I my guess is he's capitalizing on what the psalmist said today. If only you would hear his voice. And so this notion of urgency, it, it has in mind, now is the time for salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, so as long as, you, kind of, as long as you have breath, if you have been given the gift of today, there's this urgency to, to give your life to God. All right, let's go to the last one. The second to last one. The hardening of hearts is interesting in Scripture. Sometimes God does it to our lead, to leaders or to his people. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. Uh, so how does this all work? <laughs> <laughs> this, came, this question came in in a couple different forms. Somebody asked about Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and how did that all work? And so, yeah, Kelly, explain it to us. How does it work, man? All right. So... It is true that um, if you read the the Exodus narrative, sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes God is active, actively hardening Pharaoh's heart for purposes that God only knows. And I think what I would say here is we can't have it both ways. By that I mean either God is intimately involved in the world and working to save us apart from anything we do, or 
God is distant and uninvolved, and we are saving ourselves, which is what Buddhism and his Hinduism and Islam teach. Um, Christianity is different, though. Christianity teaches that God is at work in the world, intimately involved in the lives of individuals. He's at work for his glory, primarily, and secondarily for the good of his people. So whatever brings God glory is in my best interest, is good for me, good for my family, good, good for the community, good for the globe. This is good news that God's intimately involved because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And in other words, dead people can't revive themselves, they can't save themselves, they can't bring themselves to life. But God is actively at work in the world doing that. But it also means that God's choosing whom he'll save. Uh, and he's saving some. And God only knows why he's not saving everybody. And that can strike us as, quote unquote, unfair. I understand that. And the Apostle Paul understood it. And in Romans chapter 9, he addresses it. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to begin in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? He's talking about the work of salvation. And Paul says, not at all. God's not unjust. For he, for he says to Moses, so Paul's recounting the Exodus narrative, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, it's God's, it's, God has the authority. God has the responsibility. And so God gets to do what God does. He keeps going, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, he's talking about salvation, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So John, you rightly pleaded from the platform, that your heart would stay soft. And it is a, it's a primary theme in Hebrews 3, do not harden your hearts. And so in as much as we have as believers, and when, you, when you're born again, the Spirit enlivens you. It's called being regenerate, being brought to life. And so the Spirit actively enables you uh, to, do a, to do the appropriate work to soften yourself and to, we say, transform your mind, you, mean, you know, uh, do not conform any longer. So there's this active opportunity we have. And so uh, in Hebrews 3, we're told, don't harden your hearts. Don't let sin's deceitfulness harden your heart. So we've got this opportunity because of the Spirit's freedom in our lives. But it's also the case that God's at work in the world, hardening some for his glory. And, and to say, I'm not sure why he's doing that is simply to admit I'm not God. Mm -hmm. In other words, it would be impossible for any of us to know all of God's purposes. We just don't have that opportunity. But we do know that he's calling out to people. And I say to people, so I've had people say to me, well, that's not fair that God's hardening some. I don't want to serve a God who would harden some. And I said to them, well, if you don't want to be saved, why are you angry about not being saved? In other words, 
and I'll go, I don't leave it at that. I'd say to them, do you want to be saved? Because if you want to be saved, then come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said. In other words, often the people that are irritated about the reality of God's sovereignty and salvation are the ones that aren't being saved. And so if 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 you want to be saved, it means that God's already at work in your heart, softening you to the message of your you're dead in your, your sin and trespasses and that you need his grace and goodness. So I hope that helps. Yeah. That's good. I think it was C.S. Lewis uh, who described hell as a, having a door locked from the inside. Yes, I am, is- I'm not double predestinarian. I, I do believe that God is not unjust and that all those who are condemned are rightly condemned by God. He's just and fair. And that we commit sins that mm-hmm. are condemnable. I had multiple um, people con- contact me about the the harden the hardening of their heart the want that there were they listed specific things that were ha- causing a season of hard heartedness or things they had pursued that had hardened their hearts and that they just hadn't I'm not that they just hadn't had the language around what was needed how encouragement can actually. Um, soften their heart. The one person talked about some some um, issues that they uh, racial things. They had hardened their hearts to God's voice of um, care yeah. and acceptance of all people. And um, the how that you know the the prayer for that, but then the encouragement of others. The other saying, "No, <laughs> that's that's not how we should live. That's not." what God's word says and just that encouragement of the body around that issue and how on Sunday and uh, how important that is and on Sunday from the at down at Papa Creek Hebrews 3 is all about you know Moses Jesus greater than Moses and he quotes Psalm 95 Psalm 95 is all about the rebellion at Mirabah where there's bitter water and they can't drink it and the Israelites complain and Moses strikes the rock out of which water comes and gushes and, and quenches the thirst of the Israelites. He was supposed to speak to the rock. He didn't do that. And because that he was not allowed to go into the promised land, he disobeyed God. I noted in Numbers 20, where the story is told, Miriam dies right before this. And I just quizzed. I don't have any, I'm not certain. I wonder if the death of his sister added to his discouragement. Uh, it wasn't, you know, granted, it had been 40 years of wandering with a stubborn, stiff-necked people, and that's hard leadership soil. I mean, that's not easy. Uh, but then, you're, then your sis dies, who walked with you out of Egypt, and you see that this first generation is not going to get to enter. And I just wonder if he was in a really hard season of leadership, and, and that discouragement led him to a, a point of disobedience that he didn't get to enter the promised land. I do think as leaders, it's a blessing to be a pastor. Um, there's also unique peril in being mm-hmm. a pastor, and we need to be careful. Uh, anybody, wherever you exercise influence, what a blessing to ask, exercise influence, uh, but there's a burden to exercising influence. It can be discouraging. There are discouraging seasons as parents, and we just need to be mindful of that, that our hearts don't grow hard. I think of what you said earlier, Simone, this idea of... Um having people that are in your lives that know you and trust, that you trust. 
I think so many times we we run on the surface with people so much, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I can think of a couple times, even in the last you know few months where someone's either called me out or I've done something stupid and I've had to confess, hey, I was an idiot. I shouldn't have done that. Sorry that you had to be part of that or whatever it was, you know? And man, I'm just trying to do more and more and more of that because I just think, I just, you know, I don't want to grow into an old, hard-hearted, crotchety man. (laughs) I really, really honestly don't. And I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not, I don't, I don't have anybody in mind specifically but there's a lot of but people it in that category, and I, and I interact with them. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just don't want to be, I so much don't want to be like that. And I feel like one of the ways I become that is if I try to justify behaviors, things that I did that were stupid, I, I you know, don't listen when somebody says, dude, don't act like that. <laughs> like I had a situation this summer where... I, I was, we were on a long bike ride, me and another guy, and we inter, we had to interact with somebody that had closed a trail, and I was really frustrated. It should should have been closed. They probably had no deta- detour, and I was just a, kind of a jerk to the person. Like, I really was. I mean, I was just like, come on, man, 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 you know? And he's like, after we kind of got through this area, he's like, you probably could have handled that better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, maybe next time we, we don't do that, or we could, he said something really, he's very kind and gentle, and he said something like, we might have been able to win him over with kindness, or something to that effect, you know? I was like, you're right, man. I just need, I want more people like that in my life. Um, I want to, when I act like an idiot, I want to tell people I acted like an idiot. Sorry, it was sinful. I shouldn't have done it or whatever it is. I don't know. I'm certainly not perfect, man. But Do you think that hardening your heart is maybe similar along along the same vein as what we today kind of call burnout? Do you think there's some parallelism there? I certainly think that burnout... Mm -hmm can cause bitterness, Mm -hmm. which then hardens your heart to the things Mm -hmm. of God. You don't see the things that are happening as beautiful, Mm -hmm. awesome from God. You're not soft, tender to them. You start to see, particularly in ministry burnout, I think is kind of what you're asking about, maybe. But, you know, I, I know when there's, that people have faced burnout, they actually have some contempt for the people they're actually trying to love, serve, and lead because mm-hmm. they're so needy. And then mm-hmm. they talk bad about them. And I think that's a sign of burnout, but I also think burnout can start to cause some of that mm-hmm. as well. So at our at Naomi's house, burnout is obviously a, a, a vulnerability for our staff that's because we work with people who are- huge. Um, Very needy, yeah. Yeah, and just having um, their trauma, the depth of trauma that they experience can cause secondary trauma or vicarious trauma to our team. And we just put in our handbook, like our, you know, our kind of policies and procedures, def- a definition for and defining of trauma stewardship. And so another way of saying that for people who don't necessarily work with, although- Get ready, John. Part of my presentation for our class in a couple of weeks is how to preach with a trauma-informed, trauma-informed lens. Bring Kelly, it. I'm going to give you the book when I'm done. It is so good. Yeah. Anyway, my point in that is that there's a, probably a, an entire congregation full of people who have experienced trauma. Um, trauma stewardship is a way to prevent burnout. So not to like analyze your example, John, but sometimes when you find that you wish you would have handled it differently. It could just be a sign of something deeper. I'm not saying it in that case. That could just been like you were were, were tired. It's called my sin. (laughs) 
it's called my sin yeah, nature. But a lot of times it's revealing of something else. And so just to be aware and giving ourselves permission, whether you're in ministry or not, an opportunity to take a step back and do some trauma stewardship, or I keep calling it trauma stewardship because that's the field I'm in, but just doing some self-evaluation of where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. Where is this behavior that I don't like? stemming from something that's a little bit deeper and giving yourself a lot of freedom to explore that and to become even more self-aware and then make changes based on that. And I don't know, I could keep going, but I won't, but there's so many tools that are available to us to make changes at the root of where our sin comes from versus just trying to modify the behavior. So there is no sin in being exhausted. Right. Uh, What happens is, um, so burnout is not a sin in itself. Um, I, what happens when I'm burned out, I'm more easily hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Mm-hmm. And so the trauma, being traumatized, I mean, you're a victim. And so there's no sin in being victimized. But what happens is trauma uh, puts me in a place where I'm more desperate. And so in, in Hebrews 3, it talks about being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what happens is I get burned out and I'm more easily deceived Mm -hmm. into, oh, that's going to give me what I think I need. Mm -hmm. The deceitfulness of sin is exactly that, that it is okay, good for you, positive, uh, helpful, the right thing to do, your way is better. I think that's the, and that's, that path begins to harden your heart to the things that are actually the right things, the good things, the things that are actually going to reward you. So we get stuck thinking that we are right. We're always right. This is good. I can do this. It provides joy. And that's that's the deceit. So yeah. that path has self-righteousness, bitterness, anger, but it also can have uh, numbness, willing numbness. Willing just like, you know what? I'm just done. I'm not going to feel this anymore. I'm just going to coast. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to... You know, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and then that can lead to hardness of heart just as much as mm-hmm. bitterness or anger or, you know. Mm-hmm. I encouraged uh, the congregation at Poplar Creek last week, if you have a sin that you're, you're entangled in or that you visit regularly, his, historically we've called them besetting sins, your favorite sin, you might just take a moment and go backwards where has unbelief fueled or how might unbelief doubt about who God is and all he's done for us fueling that sin or what, what is going on that my heart is embracing that rather than embracing the things of God? Mm-hmm. Am I exhausted? Have I experienced trauma? Um, so fruit versus root. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, real, real world example. Um, the Michigan State situation with their football coach. Have you guys been seeing the hor- horribleness that's gone on? It was the front page of USA Today um, yesterday. Um, inappropriate uh, behavior with a vendor of the university, uh, a woman, the head football coach. Inappropriate behavior. Investigation, all this. Well, that's university's moving, re- moving to fire him. One of my boys uh, sends a text to... Um, my other son and, and me and says, you know, like, wow, he's going to get fired on this situation, you know, Big Ten, Michigan State, you know, this whole thing. And um, he's going to lose out on $80 million 
of his contract. He's sin, one year in. Sin is costly. So uh, my response, this is what I responded to my boys, sin will always be discovered and always leads to destruction. It always gets found out. Happened a couple years ago, thought it was no big deal. I could just hide from it, whatever. It always, at some point, it gets discovered. It comes out, it discovers, and it always leads to destruction. Now, this is loss of job, loss of money, loss of standing, loss of influence. I mean, it's... Or you get hired as the... Right. Um, the next... The defensive coordinator for Texas A&M, the guy who... Anyway, maybe he's the offensive coordinator. I can't remember which yeah. one. Yeah. He got a job. <laughs> but, yeah. It, that's why we don't want to harden our heart, you know? Yeah. See, what we were talking about a little bit ago leads into the next question, um, just about the importance of small group and, and sharing, confessing, those kinds of things. So this is um, this question, I'd love our small group to involve more confession and discussion about sin, but we kind of just stay on the surface. What do you suggest? I'd suggest leading by example. If you want something, go where you want to be and, and invite people to come with you. That's called leadership. So... So you might say in your small group, folks, I, I, I need to confess and then, you know, my selfishness or whatever it is, and then ask them to pray the gospel over you. And so I, confession is cumbersome sometimes because we don't know the appropriate response. James 5.16 is really clear. Confess your sins and pray for one another's healing. It's not confess your sins and then begin to fix each other, psychoanalyze <laughs> each other. Right. So in small groups, you know, someone dumps something difficult on the table, like I've got this sin, I need to confess it. It's really not the small group's job to fix that person or thing, right? It's the Holy Spirit's job. But what we're told to do really clearly is when we hear someone's confession is to pray for their healing. That's the point of power. That's the point of contact. It doesn't mean we can't have any input, but we need to make sure the person's asking for input. Like when Simone didn't want my comment on whether she should go on her silent retreat. She just wanted to confess, right? So anyway, James 5.16, I, I think that we all want to be a part of intimate experiences and we wait for other people to take us there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to ask yourself some practical questions like, is this week two? <laughs> You know, totally. I mean, no, are you doing point. relational work? Yeah. Cause it and, takes time. Right. How much? Maybe a <laughs> less for you, more for normal people. Wait, how much time? <laughs> there are people who can't wait to confess their sins. And there are people who really need to know that you can we tease this out? What are you, what are you doing? What are you, where are you at? Get, get to the point. <laughs> it's one of your strengths, Kelly. Yeah. But maybe your small group needs to do some getting to know each other and not this, you know, superficial, let's read through a list of questions, kind of like really get to know each other. Go hang out, go do something, go whatever it is. But like, you know, may, for some people, some people need that in order to take those next steps of faith where they're really opening up and sharing. Well, and people, let's be honest, I mean, people can, you need... You need to model it for sure, but we can't always expect too that. Like I have a friend, I have a friend. He's hilarious. He's been a Christian all his life, you know, works at church, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, he goes, whenever we, I go to men's ministry, I've always got my 
my my spiel, you know, because they always ask, well, when's the last time you had inappropriate thoughts or, you know, whatever in the, and he goes, I always say three weeks. Eh, it's been about three weeks. He's like, three weeks is far enough away that they're not going to ask a whole lot of detailed questions, but it's close enough to, to today. To appear vulnerable. So that I can appear vulnerable. Oh my gosh. That's so I'm funny. not endorsing this behavior. But I'm it's not real. endorsing, but I'm just, my point is we can get good at confession as well, where we say things like, you know, I'm really, I'm just, you know, I'm really struggling with perfectionism. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I just can't get past the, those questions are asked at men's retreats. That's That's a men's retreat. Welcome to a men's retreat. (laughs) No, that's, that's not true. That's not the only thing men's ministry, but often men's ministry that has accountability and whatever is, you know, what, this, the struggle with with um, sexual temptation okay. is a, is a prominent theme, right, guys? I don't know what you're talking. About. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> yes, <You're> so, of course. <laughs> in fact, if anything, it's oh, it might be a reason that some don't engage is wow. because they're they're don't worried. Go there. Yeah. They're don't not, ask me what women's retreats because it's been a long time since I've been on one. <laughs> I just can't even tell you an example. Maybe but, I should go. All right, let's go to the last one. Uh, the metaphor of the sorry games was funny. But honestly, pretty helpful. I wonder, though, getting knocked off track doesn't mean we lose our salvation, right? Hebrews 3.6 and 3.14 use the word if, which seems conditional to me. Can you explain? That's a great, great question. And it's a fair question. The book of Hebrews has a lot of this. In fact, I was doing prep this morning for our sermon on Hebrews chapter 10, which comes in about five weeks. And the... uh, the call to persevere confuses folks. Um, gosh, if we have to persevere, does that mean we may not make it? And that's not at all the case. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, we, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. He's talking about judgment, but to those who have faith and are saved. So he's, he's warning them, persevere, work hard, endure suffering, or else right? There's loss. You're going to suffer loss. There's even judgment ahead for those that don't persevere. But then he says, but we don't belong to those who shrink back. In other words, we don't belong to those who fail to persevere and are as a result, destroyed, condemned, miss out on salvation. But we belong to those who have faith and are saved. And so he's not discounting the gospel. He's not. He's, he's, perseverance has been an understood element of the saving work of God in our lives. The same folks, Jesus himself said, I'll not lose any of those he's given me. Is that making sense? So those that God has given, uh, he's, he'll, he'll bring to glory, he'll perfect, to use um, Paul's words in Romans. So I, I know it sounds as if the saving work of God is conditional. Conditional, great, thank you. Iffy, I was going to say iffy. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not at all. In fact, Romans eight's beautiful. If you're struggling with the fear of losing your salvation, uh, go to Romans eight or read the the closing of it. Um, I'm looking for it now, but can't find it. Nothing will separate us from the love of God is is the refrain that is so comforting. Uh, those he called, so Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those God foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son. So he foreknew us, he predestined us, then it continues on, that he might be the firstborn, and those he predestined, he called to faith, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. So it's something he starts, Hebrews says it himself, he's the author and perfecter. He starts, he continues, he finishes. One of the things that we need to get used to is the saving work of God in the New Testament is both punctiliar, it happens in a moment when we're born again, and it's process. He is saving us. He's saving us from the corruption in the world uh, to the perfection that is glorification in eternity. So there is a process here, and we, we have to endure and persevere in the process of his saving work. It's not our saving. I think that's important to grab the breadth of Scripture when we come across these statements that sometimes on their plainest, the, the most simplest basic reading of that verse can tend to contradict other places in Scripture where we know that that that's that we we don't it isn't conditional our relationship with the lord and our salvation is not merit based so the breadth of scripture in other places informs these types of passages but we also you know you can do some some hermeneutical and exegetical work with the with the passage as well to to understand that the idea of we are his house if indeed we hold firm to our confidence and hope in which we glory, I would say, and we are his house, meaning we are faithful. We, we, we are his faithful church that honors him completely as what he's, that's what he's talking about in the verse right before it, right? So it isn't always just to pull the one verse. What I'm saying is it makes sense to me that there are some that would use that verse as, or verses as a description of that we need to earn or merit our salvation. It could be lost and gained and lost again and gained again and lost again based on our behavior. Yeah, they're called Wesleyans. Yes. They're called Arminians. Right. So I could, we, Theologically. I, I have an understanding of where that comes from. Yeah. I would say that there's other places in Scripture that inform this type of um, sentence um, more fully and and do the work to, to connect it to the, the point of the entire passage. Let's take John 6, for example. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. We are not holding on to God. He is holding on to us. We are not saving ourselves. He's saving us. What does it? That doesn't mean we're inactive and passive. To the contrary, we're freed by his grace to persevere. Preach. Amen. Does not get old. It's a good word. It's mm-hmm. truly good news. Mm-hmm. So many times growing up, I heard from the pulpit what I would describe as, well, that's okay news. Mm. God loves me, but doggone it, you better work really hard or he may not mm-hmm. love you. It's nice that he loves me, but... I, I leave feeling burdened, like I don't know that I can ever run fast enough or jump high enough, morally speaking, to not miss out on this. Mm-hmm. It's nice he loves it. It's just okay news. It's so-so news. The gospel is really good news. All right. That's great. That's all the questions we have for you today. If you have any further questions, comments, or concerns, don't hesitate. Text the next level podcast, 630-474-6164. 
Our podcast is dedicated to answering listener questions on two levels, answering specific questions about last Sunday's sermon and also general questions regarding broader topics within the Christian faith. We love God and believe that scripture is a primary means for our getting to know him. And our hope is that this podcast extends the learning opportunity for all who want to know God better, strengthening not only your faith, but my faith and our faith together. Thanks for joining us. Thank you listeners for tuning into the next level. Prophecy.